Hello, hello, and welcome. Hello, Johannes, how are you? Hello, uh, nice to see you. Nice to hear you. Nice to see you. Nice I, to I'm, hear you too. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy now to discuss on on uh, on fasting and uh, the brain and how lipids are activating brain circuits. Yeah. Oh, we're so excited. We're so excited. I hope everything works. I send uh, a two PDFs, one on the paper and one on on the model we are working on. Okay. More detail. I hope it, yeah. you could uh, uh, load it to the to the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a an option to put a link, so we're gonna do that. Um, and that's why we start the room, you know, a few minutes before. So we're just setting that Perfect. up to make sure. Yeah. So don't you know you, you don't worry about that. We'll take care of it. Okay, <laughs> I think Katarina will be coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Last time I had some problems with the technique. I, I couldn't speak. It was really uh, awful. Yeah, but I hope everything is fine for today. Oh yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, but hi, we have Jamie. an excellent audience. Hello. Yeah, hi. Hi, Jamie. How are you? Hello, Doctor. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm Jamie. Hi, Cicerim. Hi, Jamie. I'm looking forward to your talk. Uh, I was just reading your paper. It's uh, incredibly interesting. Um, I'm happy I, I was, to hear that. <laughs> I was about to ask you some questions, but no, that can wait. Sure. Can wait. <laughs> sure. Like, I'm, yeah. It's 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 really a, a new a new field of of research, and uh, I also have a lot of questions. Yeah, <laughs> still. <laughs> Good. I, I, Which I we could yeah. we couldn't answer everything in one paper. I mean, that's that's uh, yeah. It's too much at one time, but it's interesting. So how it is, yeah. Well, it would actually be worth having a paper written on someone answering <laughs> all the questions in one paper. <laughs> um, but that would be a feat, yeah. If we could answer all the questions in one paper, yeah, yeah, it's always like this. Yeah, I mean, either you go into deep with some single questions, or you are very broad, and then you are not able to follow them into deep. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. always the. Point, yeah. But Do you ever? Yeah. Sorry. Please, please continue. Now, every every anyone has this problem. Yeah. I mean, sure. Mm -hmm. Do you do you ever feel overwhelmed by um, for every question you you get an answer to, two or three more pop up? Does it ever feel overwhelming? No, that's that's working. I mean, we go step by step and we try to 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 tackle a problem from different ways and with different animal models and. We try to better and better understand the system. I mean, uh, you, it's yeah. I don't know if you call it overwhelming, but it's uh, yeah, it's complex. Yeah, mm -hmm. you have sometimes to step back and rethink uh, your strategy. But uh, yeah, so uh, now we have even uh, a big loop where you you start at the hypothalamus. You go on the lipolysis, and then this lipolysis brings in some lipids which go into the brain, and only very you have their specific transporters, and they are in the brain. They make a very complex uh, uh, signaling at the synapse, which we have described over time. So uh, it's not not a one paper shot. I mean, we started in 2009 with a cell paper, where we first described that lipids are able to modify 
signaling and synaptic uh, glutamatergic release and then yeah so we didn't know what to do with this to be honest yeah <laughs> it was uh these proteins are, are very uh, unique and you don't find any homology so you're completely uh, a little bit on your own yeah but um took 12 years yeah <laughs> to understand yeah wow <laughs> 12 years so yeah, but in this time, I mean, it's like a salami tactic. Yeah, I mean, you start with one problem, you go to the next one, you go to the next one, and then uh, I mean, we what we thought at the beginning, it's 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 a psychiatric molecule. Yeah, so we have schizophrenia and things like this. Yeah, and uh, then uh, we found some some humans which have a characteristic mutation in these genes, and they did not have a schizophrenia, but somehow slightly increased risk so it was not what psychiatric would psychiatrists would say this is a single single gene responsible for schizophrenia no it's possibly one part of the system but one part also uh, which has much more to do with fasting and it may be something which is an ancient circuit which keeps us alive when we are missing food yeah i mean you always have to think i mean it's it's very understandable if you say when you are fasting you don't have food you get more active and you are searching food and uh, um, i mean humans have some quite of reserves so um, they can stay some some weeks without food if they have enough water but mice are at the limit mostly yeah and therefore it's worth to study this in mice because you this what happens in humans is happens much faster in mice and so we are able to describe this changes even after 16 and 18 hours of fasting in mice yeah and um yeah uh, then it, it seems somehow logic yeah because if mice do not have food they have to search and it's not like we keep our mice in a very uh, pleasant conditions they have always food they have nice embedding they have uh, social interaction with some wheel uh, where they can run running wheels yeah? uh, in nature they, they it's always uh, food is limited and you have to have some mechanism which keeps the animal alert and searching for food and that's very difficult to understand if you're going straight forward most mostly I think that results come if if, if you come from the side yeah from the sideline yeah and you say oh uh, somehow my gene has to be something has to do something with with food intake and then we we followed and indeed we we found something that is incredibly interesting um yeah i i'm actually looking forward to this talk because uh, uh, I, I always find it incredible when you, we can look at mice and actually find so many um correlations with like ourselves like obviously like biologically there's a lot of things we don't have similar but what you're saying how um learning about things like fasting with mice and everything um and that actually can translate over to humans i always i always find that amazing when i find out how similar we are to different creatures it's always amazing for me yeah i mean it's it's uh it's a wonder on one side on the other side uh I think this mechanism are are, are uh, related to the nature, and they develop in a similar way in in uh, 
in different species. I mean, we are 70 million uh, years away from the mice. And uh, yes, uh, that's, that's, that's a point, yeah. And I think we are, uh, yeah, some even more, more different from, from pigs. And uh, still you may think uh, that the mice have a gyrate, a lysencephalic brain, so they have a non-folded brain while we have a folded brain. And uh, pigs, which uh, are uh, quite more different, uh, have also a folded brain, meaning indeed this mechanism are simply the best way to cope with limited space or with limited food and they develop in parallel. And um, yeah, possibly that, that's one of the clues why we are able to study in different species similar things that then apply to humans. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's all really, really interesting. I mean, I can't wait <laughs> to hear this talk. And, you know, it's actually, you know, two o'clock now. So I think we should try and see, you know, how we can get started. Unfortunately, Katarina is trying to get in, but her internet is not very strong where she okay. is. So, yeah, unfortunately, I don't know, but she might join us soon. Hopefully she joins us soon. Um, so, yeah, but just to confirm before I go into, you know, introductions, um, your last name is pronounced Vought, right? Yeah, it's Vogt, yeah. Vogt. Vogt. Yeah, Vogt, oh, yeah. I'm so sorry, Vogt. Okay. Yeah, it's difficult, I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> no, it's okay, thank you. Vogt, okay, I got it now. Um, all right, so yeah, I guess we're just gonna get started and hopefully Katarina can join us soon. So I will give a, a brief introduction of you, uh, Johannes, and then Jamie, you know, could go ahead and ask you a couple questions. Um, you know, just, you know, just so we can get to know you a little bit more. Okay, so, right. Perfect. Yeah, welcome everybody to the Science Society. Today we have Dr. Johannes Vogt, and he'll be talking about brain signal pathways um, controlling food intake. Um, so Dr. Vogt, he is a principal investigator um, working in the Department of Molecular and Translational Neurosciences in the Center of Anatomy in University of um, University Hospital of Cologne. Um, and his group works on synaptic lipid signaling, which regulates glutamatergic <laughs> transmission and thereby critical network excitability. And so the research is focused on metabolic changes that affect bioactive lipid levels and thereby also synaptic lipid signaling, which leads to cortical hyper-excitability. Hyper um, and a typical finding in aging brains. So he's interested in elucidating the mutual connection of synaptic lipid signaling, metabolic regulation, aging, and cognitive functions. Um, so yeah, so he's in, he, he and his group have identified a group of molecules regulating synaptic lipid signaling called plasticity regulating genes, which regulate glutam glutamatergic transmission in, in the cortex and thereby cortical network activity. So he's going to have a wonderful talk with us here about just how brain activity works and what occurs when, you know, we eat food. So I have posted up top um, the link to the article, um, his article. It's a, um, an Adobe link. So please go ahead and click that and follow along as he gives his talk. So I'm going to pass it on to Jamie. Hey, Jamie. So uh, Jamie's going to ask you a couple questions just so we get to know you a little bit more and then we can get into the talk. So thank you very much. First of all, the, thank you for this wonderful introduction. So I'm happy to take questions. 
Thank you very much. And so first of all, let me officially welcome you to Science Society. It's a genuine pleasure to have, uh, have you here, Doctor. Uh, so first of all, just to um, give the audience a way to just get to know you a little bit better and, and uh, make it all friendly. Um, the first question to you is, so when was the first time you actually felt yourself having an affinity for science and academia? And is there any story behind that? That's my first yeah, question. So that's, that's quite a long story. So I'm uh, trained as a neurologist. So I'm a medical doctor trained as a neurologist. And uh, during my PhD, I, I worked on a research topic and um, yeah, some, some kind related to stroke and some potassium channels. And uh, I was always fascinated by that. And uh, in fact, during my medical education, I was fascinated by neuroanatomy. And uh, I thought it's so wonderful. I mean, you have so much so much wiring on so little space and everything goes so smooth and it's so precisely organized. How can that really happen in nature? Yeah? And I think I, for me, that was a miracle on, uh, on especially the fact that, uh, I mean, whenever you see a brain, uh, you start and look at brain and you are fascinated and you think, oh, the brain is so complicated. You have so many wirings and so many uh, gyri and uh, sulci and you uh, they have all names and all they have a, uh, some kind of meaning yeah and uh, you have to also to to irrigate this and you have the blood supply and um, the venous um, uh, regulation and then then the interesting thing in the brain is um, you think it's so complicated when you have an outside look and then you go into deep and you see, oh, oh my gosh, that's even more complicated. And in, in, in uh, really tiny, tiny spaces and tiny slides, you find so much detail and the brain is so much full packed. And then you see, you see a lot of neurons and you see a lot of spines and you go further and see, yeah, you go with electron microscopy and you think, oh, now I discovered some world. Yeah? And then uh, you, you start doing biochemistry and then you see, my gosh, that's even more complicated. So there are so many proteins there. One synapse, you don't see it by eyes. You barely see it with the microscope. And then you go to electron microscope where you are able to, to visit it and to, to have a look on it. And it's even more complicated because you have so many proteins in, and all do react with each other and everything goes so fast. And this is really, if you, you shut that down, you shut uh, thinking down and uh, being down. And uh, how can that really happen? I mean, it's, it's really something like a miracle. And therefore, I was fascinated by that. And I said, uh, OK, I, I would like to, to, to go forward with neuroanatomy. And uh, yeah, so uh, we happened to be then engaged with this protein, PRG1, which we found in a screen, which was in fact, to be honest, uh, we did not expect, we, we did uh, neuronal regeneration. So we had lesioned neurons and then we wanted to see. So uh, the theory is that a lesion neuron is uh, trying to uh, regenerate itself and uh, if, if we find the proteins which are upregulated, trying to bring this regeneration forward, we will be able to, to enhance this regeneration by overexpressing this protein. And now we found this PRG1, which was completely new and uh, had no similar similarity to any kind of other proteins, but uh, 
some kind of similarity to lipid phosphate phosphatases, uh, something I never heard before. Yeah, so okay. Uh, we said uh, no homology, no no clear uh, motives. Yeah, but transmembrane protein um, seems somehow nice, and uh, with uh, with its homology to lipid phosphate phosphatase, it has something to do with lipids. Now. We said, okay, um, let's start uh, trying to find something out. Yeah, so maybe this is a, I don't know, it, you have a housekeeping protein and uh, looks quite nice, but uh, you don't know where it's uh, expressed, possibly everywhere. If you knock it out, nothing happens. So that that can happen. Yeah, I mean that that's quite something that happens. And uh, then we made a knockout mouse and made an antibody again. So uh, that was really a big step forward because we were able then to show the antibodies we produce are also specific because we had uh, very big problems with unspecificity. So trying to correlate with, with the knockout animal to see how specific is the antibody, which one to take. And then we, th we found that this protein ex is expressed very specifically in excitatory neurons in the brain only. Yeah, So that was uh, already something new because uh, normally you have uh, the proteins almost everywhere. Yeah? And uh, we have only in excitatory neurons and the principal neurons. And that was already nice, but then we went further and did in indeed what uh, I talked before, electron microscopy. And so, wow, this protein is only expressed in excitatory synapses. So not the inhibitory synapse, only the excitatory synapse is not expressed in, in astrocytes, is not expressed in oligodendrocytes, is not expressed in microglia. So very specific excitatory synapse on excitatory neurons. So I thought, mm -hmm, okay, that's nice. And we only found it at the postsynaptic density where, um, you uh you where you have all the receptors for glutamate yeah so the AMPA receptor the MMDA receptors these are the ionotropic receptors and you have metabotropic receptors you have kinate receptors but they seem to be this uh, PRG1 this plasticity related genes uh, seem to be there specifically yeah and I will most I will only talk about PRG1 yeah which is uh possibly the most known member the best known member of this family but not the only one but it's well characterized and well um yeah Jamie. Oh, sorry I, I was just going to say that your your fascination for this is really really interesting your your um your interest in this is very contagious i'm actually getting quite excited um as you're even describing this much and um last question then before we put you on to the talk itself um sure can you please tell us then um, what was it that led you? Well, I mean, you were actually already explaining that, so I apologise for interrupting if I did. But um, no what was it? Sorry, specific... I, I, I would talk too long. Uh, too long. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, 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 no! That's why you're here. That's why you're here. Please, please, no, <laughs> no. Um, the question was just um, if you, uh, what was it that got you studying this particular aspect of this paper that we're going to talk about today? That's yeah, so in, in fact, uh, we, we found a lot of things uh, on this plasticity-related genes and lipid, uh, synaptic lipid signaling. And this was very related to what happens if we delete PRG1, yeah? And we thought, yes, we delete PRG1, we have more uh, lipids at, in, the, in the synapse. And we always thought, how can it be? I mean, you have to have a bigger context on that, yeah? I mean, 
it's clear if you delete uh, PLG1, you have more lipids, these lipids are bioactive, but you have to have, I mean, most research on lipids, it's in the periphery. I mean, uh, you have the adipose tissue, you have the brown adipose tissue, the white adipose tissue, you have the liver, you have all all this, uh, this diseases, which are metabolic disease and are affecting uh, the liver, they affect the, the pancreas, they, it's, it's a lot of, of disease you have. And then we thought, we have to have a link. I mean, it cannot be that we have a lipid, we have a really very precise lipid signaling and we don't have the big the big view. I mean, it's like uh, when you are a little bit of looking at the, something very close with a microscope uh, and you see some kind of very interesting uh, findings, but you do not realize that you are in the jungle. <laughs> I mean, that is, you don't, you, you, you see the really things you, you, analyze under the microscope, but you are not able to see the jungle. And, and this is what the feeling we had. And we said, it cannot be, we have to have a bigger look, uh, a bigger look on it. And then we said, okay, we analyze what happens if we fast animals, we, we started to make research and uh, what everything one would believe, then you have a lipolysis and uh, when the glycogen storage are, are depleted and um, yes, uh, sure, but lipids are not able to pass the blood brain barrier. Then uh, we got in contact to some uh, colleagues which are uh, analyzing this uh, mechanism, which uh, are able to transport lipids uh, past the blood brain barrier and yes then we started to said how how can we how can we challenge the system because we want to have something which is very specific and it's not and it's it's really related to lipid changes in the body yeah and then we come on fasting and we tried different fasting protocols and so forth so this is the story how we started then go step by step until we teamed up with people who are working in the hypothalamus and to our big surprise, they show indeed this uh, agouti related proteins, they are affecting peripheral lipolysis. So meaning there is, there are neurons in the brain, really you have to imagine neurons in the brain, which are able to affect the fat consumption and the lipolysis in the body. I mean, that is really crazy. I thought, well, we have to learn more about this. And so we teamed up and and did our experiments and we saw, oh, yes, uh, indeed, uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. That is incredible. Um, what a wonderful lead up to your talk. Um, okay, so without further ado then, Doctor, thank you very much for sharing that with us. And when you're ready, um, the stage is yours and um, we're looking forward to hearing your talk. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. No, um, you possibly we do it like like always. So um, um, I I talk about a topic. I did not pre prepare now a talk like like you would expect to say a talk. And I thought we we go through the paper and uh, analyze possibly. Uh, we discuss the, the the caveats and what we what we found and um, yeah, possibly it's it's best to start with the synapse. I mean, I, I think anyone is familiar with the synapse and uh, we have, uh, in fact, in the brain, basically two, way, two, um, two synapses, uh, two uh, classes of synapses. And uh, the one are inhibitory synapses, uh, which are um, uh, bringing a neuron, uh, which are inhibiting a neuron, uh, 
and the other ones are excitatory synapses which induce an action potential and uh, go the way to the excitation of the of, of a circuit and um, we found that uh, this molecule is uh, indeed uh, expressed very specifically, as I said before, in excitatory neurons. So these are the neurons, uh, about 80% of the brain neurons, which uh, confirm, uh, confer excitation in the brain. And it's, uh, it's only expressed in, at, in excitatory synapses at the postsynaptic density. And this is uh, something uh, you have to think about the synapse is like a sacred place. So if you have a presynaptic terminal where you have all these glutamatergic vesicles, and when you have enough calcium in the presynaptic terminal, you have a release of glutamate, and glutamate is activating the, the receptors at the postsynaptic density, mainly AMPA receptors. If you have enough glutamate, you um, are affecting also yeah, opening the NMDA receptors. And uh, you have then an entrance of, um, of positive ions, yeah, mainly um, um, uh, sodium and calcium. And this uh, leads to a, a depolarization of the neurons and to an action potential. And this makes the neural circuit work. Now, this lipids, this PRG1, which is located there, in fact, it's, it has nothing basically to do with excitation. It's simply it fishes out LPA from the synaptic cleft. And um, yeah, so in fact, this is a negative modulator. Yeah, so we thought, okay, a negative modulator which affects a presynaptic molecule. I mean, a presynaptic, um, a presynaptic release. This is not so easy to understand because uh, this uh, pre and postsynaptic uh, terminals, when people analyze them, they basically are not analyzing both at the same side. So you have a lot of people uh, which are analyzing the presynaptic uh, terminals. They analyze how these glutamate vesicles are able to release glutamate. And there are tons of paper and, and very, very clever people working on it on the labs. And there are the other people working on the AMPA receptors, the same, almost same, same amount and, and very clever people. But we are looking now for something which is connecting the presynaptic release with the postsynaptic excitation. And indeed, to connect this, we found that uh, there is a LPA2 receptor. And I, I hope that you have a, a view on this uh, PDF, Adobe PDF, which I sent. There you see the presynaptic LPA2 receptor is a G-protein coupled receptor. And one of the very few uh, which is increasing via IP3, the calcium in the presynaptic terminal, and therefore, it's modulating the glutamate release. So the more calcium we have, the higher probability to release glutamate and to induce a postsynaptic current in the, in the neuron, uh, which has the receptor and which is uh, um, innervated by this presynaptic terminal. Now, so, so far, so good. The question which we had is, where does this LPA come from? And LPA means, Lysophosphatic acid is a very small lipid, one of the simplest lipids, but it's a very potent activator and uh, it's, um, it's very rapidly degraded. So it has a very short half-life time. So it's in about in the blood, you have it in minutes. So 
So within one minute, you have uh, you know, if you if you block the the production, you have a decrease of LTA. So it's it's something which is very strictly regulated. So it cannot uh, come from far away in the brain. It has to be produced somehow in place. And uh, we we thought the most uh, most uh, closest uh, relatives or the most closest structure are the astrocytes, which in the excitatory uh, neurons they are um, they are activated they are they are in sheeting the synapse, and um, you see uh, this is now at the number one yeah so we we started backwards we started with number three the PRG1, then we went to number two, the LPA2, and then we came to autotaxin. And in fact, I, I I started with PRG1 because this is the logical way to start. This is how we found everything and how everything makes sense. When we tell the story, we tell it mostly the other way around because it's, uh, yeah, possibly it's, it's uh, nicer to show, but in fact, it's really um, the thing we are starting with um with a bottleneck and this is indeed ph1 and then we come also to autotaxin this is uh number one and we found that astrocytes they express autotaxin and um you know astrocytes they have they are very they are cells which are enormously ramificated and they have contact also to inhibitory neurons they have contact to to blood uh, to the blood brain barrier they have contact to to um to uh to other neurons so they are very very uh have very very many contacts but autotaxin was only specifically expressed in excitatory synapses so we thought wow that's that's somehow interesting yeah so we have we never found autotaxin in inhibitory synapses and uh what we know from the work of colleagues is that autotaxin is producing lysophosphatidic acid this is lpa and it's producing from lpc and this is lysophosphatidylcholine and by a so-called nucleophilic attack there there is a choline group which is removed and then you come to lpa which is the bioactive part of this and the beauty of this is everything happens at the synapse but sure this is not so easy as, as it as it seems because autotaxin is packed in vesicles somehow and autotaxin is something like a carrier also for lpa and it autotaxin forms a tunnel and it has an intergreen binding site where it can bind close to the receptor so uh, in fact autotaxin is shedded from the astrocytes it's traveling within the synaptic cleft. It's uh, it's producing LPA. It's keeping LPA in the tunnel, and it's binding close to um, to the effector site via an intergreen binding site. So this is quite a complicated story in a very small uh, room, yeah, which is the synaptic cleft. And here we are talking about twenty to thirty nanometers. So we are far below the microscope the light microscopy and we are at the edge of what uh, normal stats are able to um, to show at the at the moment so something about 20 nanometers so sure they are also better um, better machines the miniflux from Iberia 
they are able to, um, to have a resolution of three nanometer where you see single proteins, but these are very expensive uh, machines and I know only very few people which have such a very expensive machine. Okay, possibly before I start, um, are there questions to this mechanism, which we had some, some trouble to find how it works? At the moment, uh, I don't have any. I'm just trying to absorb everything. Um, Cicerian, do you have anything at the moment? No, I'm good. I was just enjoying that wonderful background. Please keep going. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's from okay. Katarina. I don't know. Katarina just came in, so I don't know. Maybe she has something. Okay. Good. If just interrupt me, please. I'm. I'm just. Uh, we we can just then talk about the next things, yeah, and or come back. Yeah? Absolutely. Thank you. Now, uh, now we said okay. Uh, we know that animals when they fast, they have around uh, twelve hours. Uh, they have a reserve of glycogen, and then glycogen uh, storage are depleted. Um, we know this from uh, analysis in the liver. So therefore, we said, okay, we go beyond this phase where glycogens are uh, glycogen storage are still uh, available, and we go in a in a fasting period where we have also lipolysis. And we said, okay, eighteen hours is something we are targeting for, yeah, because then we are in the middle of the lipolysis phase. And um, what we did, we took plasma from these animals, and we saw. Indeed, if we look for total plasma, we have an increase of these lipids, this uh, lysophosphatidic acid, in the fasted animals when comparing to the control animals. This is figure 1b. And uh, it's not only the total plasma, but there are some specific uh, uh, LPA subtypes. And um, by specificity of LPA subtypes, meaning this is the chain length. So the more carbon atoms you have on the backbone, so the bigger the chain. And uh, if they are non-saturated, they have no double bounds and each uh, double bound is shown by the second number and it shows the degree of, um, of non-saturation. So how many double bounds it has. So these are non-saturated uh, 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 lipids and you see uh, they are almost all increased. And we looked for 18.1. Why 18.1? 18.1 is the most known uh, lysophosphatic phosphatidic acid. It's very potent in the cardiovascular system. It's in fact the most potent. It's um, it, it's we have it in quite uh, quite um, quite amount in in the in the in the blood, and. Um, whenever you look, uh, people always work with 18.1 because they have the best results. And we said, okay, why not looking for AP1? Uh, we are looking for AP1 and we are measuring also in the brain. And uh, in the brain, it's difficult to measure in the synaptic cleft. So that is very simple. Yeah. So I think even in 20 years from now on, we will not be able to measure LPA or any other things in the synaptic cleft because this is a very small, uh, small um, region, which is uh, about. Um, 20 nanometers uh, in one direction and something about 300 nanometers in the other direction. So we only can do some dialysis, but in fact, we cannot measure LPA there, but we can measure in the liquor and in the CSF. Uh, we have comparable conditions like uh, in the synapse. So the CSF is something like a proxy for what happens at the synapse. It's not exactly a proxy, but I think it's the closest way we are able to go to. 
And indeed, we found also in the CSF that LPA 181 is increased. But when we look at the other species, we, we didn't find the same increase like in the, in the blood uh, plasma. We have only specific uh, increase. We have 18, 16, 0, 18, 0 uh, increase, but not 18, 2 and uh, 20, 20, 0. So not the, the longer one. So it seems to be a, quite a specific change. Now we wanted to see what happens with the brain when we fast and uh, we did uh, miniature frequencies and I don't know if you're familiar with electrophysiology when you do miniature frequencies in fact you measure the release of some kind of single vesicles we call them quanta uh, so it's really we have a single yeah this is a proxy for a few vesicle release so it's it's the it's what happens when you have no input in the axon terminal, but only the spontaneous release. So we give therefore tetrodotoxin, which blocks all past uh, sodium channels, and we only ha we have basically no activity. We have only the the fusion, the spontaneous fusion fusion of glutamate vesicles. But this spontaneous fusion, this says a lot about the the ability the baseline ability to release glutamate and this is a we call it the pro, the release probability and the higher release probability to release glutamate the higher the probability also to have an action potential so meaning this is in fact something which triggers the action potential and the, the release of glutamate and this is what we see in fasted animals. This, this probability to release glutamate is much higher when animals are fasted. And uh, we are able also to block autotaxin. And blocking autotaxin is uh, done by, uh, we call it small inhibitory molecules. So these are molecules which are very similar to the LPC, the lysophosphatidic choline, but autotaxin is not able to um, to um, convert them and it's not uh, and they have a high affinity and they simply block the function of autotaxin and they are very specific and when we when we block autotaxin we see also this this increased release probability is going down and what we have shown in other papers so this increased release probability is something it's, it has uh, is it reflects the spontaneous activity of the neuron so if you have a higher mepsc frequency you have a higher spontaneous activity of the neurons but this is not something we invented so uh, hundreds of people are showing this by electrophysiology what we show what was very fascinating for us was that these lipids are increasing the release probability and therefore therefore by the spontaneous uh, the spontaneous activity of the neurons. Now, uh, then we said, okay, now we know if animals fast, they have a higher cortical, uh, higher cortical activity. And in fact, in fact, this is what we are also uh, thought we try to understand. And uh, this is what I talked at the beginning. So uh, when we uh, have animals which are fasting, uh, we think that they have to search for food. I mean, if there is no mechanism that animals search for food uh, while, they, while they are fasting and have no food around, 
then animals would die. I mean, mice are very dependent on, on, uh, on food intake. They have a very high metabolism, uh, I think three times higher than we have. Um, they are, after 12 hours, they already depleted their glycogen stores. And uh, 48 hours fasting from mice, it's incredibly long. It's, uh, uh, we say that already uh, 16 hour, 18 hours of fasting corresponds to two, three days of fasting in, in humans. So uh, you have to, you have to uh, think that uh, the mice is uh, like, like a feed forward uh, mechanism, uh, what you see in humans much later. So we have everything much more packed. And um, then what we know exactly that after fasting, people uh, tend to eat more. Yeah? So I think uh, a lot of people who are trying a diet experience this. When they stop diet, they stop the diet, they, they have the, the tendency to eat more during time and uh, and especially in the in the first time after fasting and and uh, uh, we call it hyperphagia and uh, in mice we, we know it very nice it's called fasting induced hyperphagia and uh, you can see in the figure two that uh, figure 2b that uh, during fasting conditions uh, we tested this inhibitor of autotaxin and there was no effect but if we are inhibiting autotaxin after fasting, we indeed see that animals eat less. So meaning indeed, uh, this, uh, this lipid inhibitor is affecting food intake. Now, um, this is first a general observation and um, we need more, more specificity because we really want to know, is this dependent on the brain? It could be also dependent on peripheral. Uh, autotaxin because autotaxin has a big role in in, uh, in the adipose tissue so it could be that it's simply a far effect uh, where you don't know uh, an epi effect where you we don't know that it's specific for the brain it may be induced by something else and therefore we deleted autotaxin specifically uh, by using a genetic uh, mouse in the cortex. So we took a uh, floxed autotaxin, uh, a mouse which expressed floxed autotaxin, and we took a emix one cre which is um, deleting uh, only uh, in the brain. So you have a Cree expression in the brain and autotaxin is only deleted in the brain. And then indeed we see that, uh, we saw that after uh, deleting autotaxin in the brain, animals eat less. Now we wanted to be even more sure and we also deleted the LPA2 receptor because the LPA2 receptor is in fact the effector of LPA at the presynaptic terminal. Now, indeed, we, we analyzed this mice and saw that after fasting, this fasting-induced hyperphagia was decreased. So indeed, we, we could show that by blocking lipids or blocking lipid signaling, we are able to decrease this fasting-induced hyperphagia. Okay, now we were interested to see, is this a unidirectional process? So meaning, does it go in both directions? Is it only decreasing this fasting-induced hyperphagia? Or if we increase the lipids, we are able to even top this uh, fasting-induced hyperphagia. And uh, we have animals where we have deleted the PRG1 molecule, and uh, as you look here in figure 2e, after fasting, these animals, which are heterozygous for PRG1, 
so it's not completely deleted, you have only a gene dot defect, then they are eating more. And why did we why didn't we take the uh, homozygous knockouts for PH1? This is very simple. We found a human mutation, it's called PH1R346T. And uh, at the position 346 in the PH1, this is in the in the intracellular CETA, there's a mutation at the arginine, which is then converted to threonine. And this is something which is very cool because there is a serin there and you have the phosphatases. It may have something to do with phosphatases, but we have a very long paper on that. It's Vogt et al. in Embo Molecular Medicine 2016, where we have shown that in fact this, this mutation is changing the intracellular glycosylation, something uh, we were not prepared for because glycosylation is mostly extracellular, but there are also some intracellular glycosylation motifs. And this is inhibiting the, the take up of LPA at the synapse via PRG1. So this is a loss of function mutation. And this mutation occurs only in the heterozygous uh, in, in a heterozygous way. So we analyzed a lot of, um, of uh, human cohorts in this uh, EMBO paper, and we were not able to find homozygous mutation for this SNP in humans. We only found heterozygous. And I think we analyzed some more than a few 10,000 uh, human subject, so we never found a homozygous mutation. So that was very strange. We would have expected it, but it seems that uh, this mutation is not uh, very uh, helpful in a homozygous um, prevalence, so only heterozygous. And therefore, we only took PRG1 heterozygous animals. But we, we have created a mouse line which expresses this mutation. And uh, this, uh, the neurons in these mouse lines are more hyperexcitable. So um, you see in figure 2G that um, the, the MEPSC frequency, so the mini frequency, is significantly increased. And when we let this animal um, uh, having food after fasting, we saw that indeed this fasting-induced hyperphagia is increased. This is figure 2H. Okay, are there questions or shall I continue? Oh, apologies, I was just listening there. Um, please continue, oh. please continue. Okay, good, good. Okay, now um, one of the questions which then arise, arise it, uh, was uh, whether indeed uh, this antitoxin is able also to change food intake and food the, the, the frequency of food intake, um, how can it modulate this? So, uh, I mean, yes, uh, we saw fasting-induced hyperphagia, that's very nice, um, but it's a very special special condition. It's, it applies to people who have a diet, but would we be able to turn around the feeding behavior of an animal? Because that was, would say, okay, we are able also to induce a long-term effect, not a very specific chronical effect, because 
uh, I mean, uh, whenever you have this very strong chronical effect, you, you think you don't know if this is really uh, hold um, is also uh, applying to a long term effect. And uh, then we analyze this uh, human mutation, animals uh, expressing this human mutation, and you see it in figure 1c. If you simply uh, weight them, or in figure 1b, if you take animals which are 17 weeks old, the body weight of the PRG1 mutation carriers is higher. And then we said, okay, we start at uh, 17 weeks of age. Maybe this could be some kind of, um, yeah, it can happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, maybe by chance. We simply follow up with animals. And uh, then you see in figure 1C, so we normalize the body weight at uh, 17 weeks. And then we looked on how this continue. And then indeed, we saw that um, the human mutation carrier mice are gaining more weight than the wild-type litters. Then we said, okay, let's see what happens when we take high-fat diet. So not standard diet for mice, but we take high-fat diet. And this is very interesting because this is, in, in fact, the Western diet which we are using. So it has a similar uh, caloric energy, but it has a much higher percentage of fat. And what we then took, we took the PRG1 knockout animals, which have a higher excitability. And we wanted to see if this higher excitability also translates during high fat diet into an increased body weight. And indeed, you see it in figure uh, 3D that uh, the red, um, um, the red uh, shown, the animals, the PRG1 knockouts shown in red, have a higher body weight compared to their wild type litters. Now, we wanted to go the other way around and say, okay, if they have a defect at the synapse and there we have autotaxin, which is continuously uh, producing LPA from LPC, then if we block autotaxin, the effect in this PRG1 knockout mice should be higher than in wild types because they already have a higher cortical excitability and they have more LPA around. And indeed, you see it, when you give autotaxin to these animals, the decrease of body weight in the animals shown in red is much higher than in the animals shown in dark gray. And these are the wild types. So dark gray are the wild types which received an autotaxin inhibitor, and dark red are the knockouts which also received an autotaxin inhibitor. But these animals lost much more weight than the wild types. But if we would not even autotaxin inhibitor, and only the vehicle in where, where we have solved, solved the autotaxin inhibitor, and this is DMSO, you still see that there is a very significant change in body weight compared to the non-treated wild types. Now, um, the question was, how can this come for? How, how can we achieve this? And uh, we had a look on how animals eat and how much do they eat per day. And you see this in figure 3F, there is the food intake per day during eight days. And you see uh, when you uh, sum up the total uh, or you compare the, the total period of analysis, the treated animals eat much less than the vehicle treated animals. Now, um, as I said before, um, 
we found a PRG1 loss of function mutation. This is the mutation PRG1 R346T only in heterozygous animals. And we tried the same in PRG1 heterozygous animals because we have shown this is a valid model for also for the synaptic mutation. And then you see when you treat these animals being on high fat diet, the animals or PRG1 heterozygous, they lose much more weight than the wild types. And here you see very clear that it is caused by a lower food intake, meaning you have, we have a chronic effect which really depends on the excitability of the cortical neurons. Okay, so um, that was uh, one part of the story and possible we will just go to the supplement because there we explain some things. Yeah. So um, first, you see the extended data figure one. Do you have this figure? Are you able to see it? Yeah, it's all the way on the end um, yeah. of the file. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So um, these are a little bit complicated, very, very uh, beautiful pictures, but they are not self-explanatory. <laughs> so uh, if, if you are uh, very deep in neuroscience, uh, you're, you're, it's, it's quite, uh, yeah, we have some understanding of it, but even that is not so easy. So first we look on the autotaxin expression in figure extended data figure one. And you see that it's mostly expressed. So the redder, the more, more red the signal, the stronger the expression is very strongly expressed in the cortex, and especially in the upper layer. And uh, also something in the layer four we have, but not in layer three so much, not in layer five. We have it very much, you see this reddish structure in the middle, this is the ependema, and we know that in, in the ependema where you are producing, where the liquor is produced, the CSF is produced, we have strong autotaxin expression. And therefore, indeed, what, what uh, this is a further proof that when we are analyzing CSF, we have a very good impression on what happened at the synapse because there we have a very strong expression. Other strong expression is in the CA1 region. Now, um, uh, in the figure B, C, D, and E, we have a stronger expression and uh, we see where PRG1 is expressed and you see that PRG1 is, has a similar expression pattern like autotaxin. When you look in the, in the visual cortex, uh, you see it in layer two, you see some sparkles in layer three, but very strong in layer four, very few in layer five, and then some sparkles in layer six. So, it, there's a similar expression like in the in the cortex and uh, in the if you look in the S1BF, the somatosensory barrel field, um, it's in uh, figure F, then you really see indeed red is the expression of PRG1, green is the NOI-N expression, and indeed you see strong expression layer 2, almost uh, very few expression, very few spots in layer 3, but very strong in layer five, which is very close to the border of a very strong expression layer four, but very close to the border of layer five. So this could be also 5A. So it's, it's something which is still uh, uh, on research and then some sparkles in layer six. And you see it's not expressed in inhibitory neurons. These are uh, GUT67 neurons. And then you have some kind of interneuronal classes, the parvalbumin, 
PV, the carotenin CR, and the calvindin CB. Uh, you don't have it in the interneurons, but in the CB, you have some kind of excitatory neurons which express CB, and they also express PH1. Now, when we look, uh, when we asked why do we look at 18.1 and not on other LPA uh, on other LPAs, we um, tested whether in in the neuronal setting, the LPA 18.1 is indeed a very strong uh, a very strong um, activator of neurons, and uh, if you look in uh, extended data figure 2b you see here the effects of 18.1 application so when we apply 18.1 to neurons we have an increase in MEPSCs, and this is uh, significant but if we uh, apply um, 18.0 we have almost uh, no increase so indeed this this shows that we are looking for the right lipid now um, we also tested after fasting the novel object interaction. And this is something that's very interesting because um, the novel object interaction is a behavioral test which is related to the cortex. It's not related to the hypothalamus because you could argue if you want, and reviewers tend to argue like this. They say, yes, you are and, and testing something very interesting, but it may be that everything you are testing is on the level of the hypothalamus because the hypothalamus drives the food intake. Now we wanted to take a non-food object and simply test the curiosity of the mice. This is what we call explorative behavior. And we give the mice a novel object which it has not encountered before. And you look how long does it interact. And you see in figure um, 3b, extended data 3b, that indeed, after fasting, there's a higher increase in uh, interaction, and you can completely block this by blocking autotaxing with the substance called PF8380. So this is very specific. And we did all the tests we, we have, um, I mentioned before. So when you take out autotaxin in the cortex, this novel object interaction is decreased. This is in figure 3C, or you take out LPA, the LPA2 receptor, also, this interaction is decreased. And then we tested vice versa. What happens if you, if you fast animals which have no autotaxin in the cortex? How is the exploration time? And you see it in figure 3D. There's no difference. And then we, we looked in, uh, in these animals which have no autotaxin in the cortex and blocked autotaxin pharmacology on, from, on, on the uh, using pharmacology because somebody could say, okay, it's a hypothalamic autotaxin which plays a role. No, if you block autotaxin by pharmacology, you have no effect when uh, autotaxin was taken out from the brain or from the cortex. So indeed, this really fits with that. Uh, so we, we went up and down and had exactly these responses which were very clear. And now I go back to the last figure, the figure four, where we wanted to understand how everything happens. And uh, we have these agglutinin-related proteins, uh, which are expressed in the hypothalamus, and they are characterizing a population. And these agglutinin-related proteins uh, were shown um, two years ago that they are affecting lipolysis. And this was shown in, um, in a model uh, where animals uh, were, had a, were fasted, uh, so it's um, 
It's a, a model for anorexia nervosa. Animals get only limited amount of food, but get full access to a running wheel. And animals which have limited access to food or only a very uh, short period where they are able to eat, they develop a hyperactivity and they lose weight. And it, this, this is a model for anorexia nervosa. Now, um, they have shown that these agglutinated proteins are important for lipolysis and lipolysis is important for animals to survive. So if you block agglutinated proteins, animals which are supposed to this model uh, of anorexia nervosa are dying within days. So this is something which is, uh, has a very strong effect. But you are able, these animals are able to survive if they get fat food, yeah, because you, um, you supply the fat which uh, would be released by lipolysis by giving it orally. Now we took these mice and we fasted them and found indeed that uh, LPA was decreased in the plasma and also LPA 18.1. And uh, this indeed shows that these animals are not able to, uh, to uh, go into lipolysis. And then we looked in the CSF and indeed we see that the uh, that the LPA was not really changed, but the total LPA was increased. So that was a very interesting, a very interesting um, observation. But what we found was that um, when you look at LPCs in the plasma, and this, if you are able to, to go to the paper, is in extended data figure six. The LPC in the plasma, the total LPC, and the LPC 18.1 are decreased. And also other, other, other levels are also decreased. 18.0 was decreased and 18.3 was decreased. But what we saw there in the figure four, I just go back, was that the total LPA was incre were increased. And what happens when we have more LPA? Then we have a competition between different LPA species for the LPA2 receptors. So then we have LPAs, which are putatively not active, but they, they uh, are inducing a competition for the LPA2 receptor. And therefore, this is known from other people and other, other analysts, and therefore we calculated a ratio. And when you calculate the LPA 18-0 ratio to the total LPA, you see that uh, the ratio was significantly, very significantly increased, decreased in this agouti-related protein deficient animals. So indeed, it's not, it's not the absolute level, but it's also the ratio to the other LPAs, which is important. Now we wanted to see if it's true, and um, we have tested the, the prefrontal cortex, we have tested excitability, and found that in the prefrontal cortex, there's a decreased excitability in these animals which do not have the agglutinated protein. And if you look at figure 4i, then you see that the food consumption after fasting was significantly decreased. Now I come to the conclusion of this paper. So indeed, if you look at figure 4g, so we have depicted there everything. 
you see this uh, this synapse. This is the cartoon of the synapse, which contains everything we discussed before. So the astrocytes, which are producing the autotaxin, the LPC, which is converted by autotaxin to LPA, and the LPA in the synaptic cleft, which is either scavenged or captured by PRG1 and degraded or is able to activate LPA2. So this is a balance between degrada degradation and activation. And you have the things which happen much more, much before when the lipolysis starts, the agouti-related proteins, which are dominating the lipolysis and are producing LPC. But LPC is not able to simply enter the brain. It has a specific transporter. And now this is very cool, this transporter. So this transporter is in fact a bottleneck to the brain. So LPC is the driving force for LPA production. And LPC has to be transported actively via a sodium co-transport. -transpo co so it's something which is uh, somehow consuming and it's very selective. And it's not easy to find a lipid transporter. And um, People who have knocked out this uh, LPC transporter, they found uh, tremendous uh, change brains. So microcephaly, the animals were small, they had different defects, but really a lot of defects in the brain, so microcephaly. And uh, they found also mutation in this transporter, LPC transporter in humans, and they had exactly the same, uh, the same uh, phenotype with microcephaly and different phenotypes. So that is the big picture, and this shows we we have here uh, regulation of uh, different levels. So uh, when we decrease lipolysis, what we think, what happened, why the total APA was increased in the CSF is that there is an increase in this LPC transporter, which we have to shown. And then you have a selective transport towards other lipid classes, which are then competing the LPA18-1 out from the LPA2 receptor, which we have shown in figure 4E. So we have shown that the ratio was significantly increased and thereby we are a, thereby the, the, this uh, excitation is going down and animals eat less. So this is a quite big story and um, it's quite complicated, but this, cartoon is showing very clear, I think, what happens in the brain. And now I'm happy also to take some questions. Wow. Uh, thank you so much, Johannes, um, for that wonderful uh, presentation. I, I had a question earlier, but my internet was kind of acting up. But um, oh, I'm sorry, but please. it's OK. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there are people in the audience as well that might have questions. So if you have any questions, please come up. Um, or you can post your questions in the chat and we'll read them out. Um, yeah, before we just, you know, go on, I have a question for you. Could you please go over the mechanism of, of, of um, anorexia that you mentioned? Because I'm trying to imagine it happening in humans. And I just wanted to maybe if you could go through it one more time. Yes. So um, this mechanism is, uh, is, uh, it, is a, it's a behavioral mechanism. Animals are allowed only a few hours to eat but they are have continuously access to a running wheel. And what animals do, they are running very much and they have a hyperactivity 
while having less amounts of food and they decrease their body weight, they, they lose fat and they go into lipolysis and uh, can survive quite well. But if you knock out the agglutinin-related protein neurons, and this you can do with uh, diphtheria toxin receptors, which they express and have agglutinin-related uh, Cree. So it's a quite complicated system, but it's very nicely genetically. These animals are not able to go into lipolysis and they die because they are not able to supply lipids while they are in this anorexia uh, phenotype. And that was something that was very interesting because it's shown that indeed this for uh, people who are, uh, or at least for this model, anorexia model, lipolysis is very important. And it's driven by the hypothalamus, which also drives food intake. So that is something that's very nice. and. Uh, links also lipolysis and food intake and hyperactivity and a model for anorexia. Is this answering your question? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and I was able to kind of just imagine it, you know, kind of in a human model. And I'm hoping maybe this could add to and, you know, propel the research forward that, you know, research on, on food eating disorders and, you know, things like that. Yeah, so, you know, the, yeah. the interesting thing is that there are some papers which show uh, people um, uh, coming with anorexia for treatment in the in the hospital and uh, they really have decreased LPCs yeah and even after um, after the first uh, feeding they they still have decreased LPCs after after gaining weight this normalizes and uh, but uh, this initial finding is very interesting because you would think that if this is a continuous situation you would have an adaptation of the system but it seems that the system cannot adapt completely. Yeah? So you still have increased uh, or changes in the lipid composition. Wow, that's very fascinating. Thank you so much for answering that question. Um, all right, so we're going to go next. Jamie, do you have a question? Jamie, are you there? All right, Katerina. <laughs> Hey, thank you so much, Johannes, for this amazing presentation and for this amazing work. I think it's so important uh, that you discover thank you, thank you. the mechanism. Yeah. Um, it will probably save a lot of people long-term chronic disease and lives, um, you know, improve life of a lot of people and especially in developed countries. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> thank you for, for this work. Um, so I have a question about, um, it's really interesting that the glia involvement in this secretory, especially um, in the hindsight that, um, you know, that the neuron to um, glia ratio in the human brain is even higher. Um, so that the, um, there, there are more glia and astrocytes um, in yes. humans, um, you know. Yeah, indeed, uh, it's yeah, really it interesting. It was a regular question. It was a regular question. So they said, indeed, you have much more neurons per space and less glia in, in, in the mice, and you have more glia and, and less neuron. The ratio is different in humans. And then we said, okay, we, we look for, for, uh, for, for the, the expression and we look how does it look in humans. And I think we have a picture somewhere. No, I think that was, uh, we only showed to the appreciation of the reviewers that indeed in the human brain, in the cortex, you have similar 
conditions. So uh, also autotaxin is uh, expressed by glia. You have the LPA2 receptor expressed in uh, 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 excitatory terminals and you have the PRG1 in uh, uh, postsynaptic density. So, but sure, you're right. Um, it may be that the, the, the effects are different. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm completely, I completely agree with you. And maybe the effects are stronger or even uh, less strong. But what we know from people coming with anorexia to, to, the, um, to the hospital for treatment, they indeed have this lipid changes and um, the adaptation is quite minimal. Yeah? And especially LPC, where you would think LPC is so abundant in, in the blood, it could be uh, easily replaced and uh, rebalanced by a lot of mechanisms yeah? where you produce LPC, LCAT, uh, enzymes but it's not it seems to be that um it's not so easy as we think yeah yeah i would assume that maybe even stronger the the effect um uh, in humans and um do you think or you're thinking about um looking if there this change do you think it's driven by epigenetic changes and um, that it persists um, or, yeah, yeah, such a strong effect. Yeah, whenever you talk about epigenetics, I, I'm sure there is something. Sure, I mean, uh, you, you imagine, I mean, uh, the, the production of autotexin, the production of this transport of LPC transporter, the lipolysis enzymes, they are very strongly, uh, I guess they are very strongly regulated by uh, epigenetic changes. But I mean, we we take it slow. We we just uh, uncovered uh, a non-neuronal pathway, so uh, they are not. It's a they are not neurons which are involved in the periphery. It's LPC, and uh, a lot of things will have to come. I mean, uh, we are just uh, starting the path. Yeah, it's a very exciting one. Thank you. I want to give Joyce and Dr. Shah and Jamie an opportunity to ask questions. Please go ahead. Hi, um, um, I missed part of it, so I'm, I apologize if you covered this at all, but I've, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the role of inflammation and in particular um, related to the microbiota and microbiota changes. Thanks. Oh, oh, oh God, yes. This is really uh, something uh, very, very cool question. Yeah, it, it's much, much uh, further than we, we are thinking now here. Uh, indeed, inflammation is one of the major driver of, of uh, brain aging. Uh, inflammation is one of the really important factors, which also goes uh, align with uh, higher excitability in the aged brain. I mean, I think you are you are talking about this, and uh, also depression. There seems to be some kind of inflammation, uh, and um, yes, I think uh, inflammation plays here a role, and lipids play a role but we didn't touch this uh, in this paper. So this is something uh, we have to do a lot of aging research. And uh, we have shown that these lipids are important for a hyperexcitability, which continues or, or is increasing during in the, in the aging brain. But uh, I'm sure you have a very good lead on that. Uh, inflammation is uh, one of the major driver of brain aging. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joyce. Um, Dr. Shah. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Johannes. I mean, I was a little bit late, but of course I'll be back and uh, listening to the reply. 
My question from you is about that you just talked about the IoT-related peptide, and I know that there is some of the researchers around the uh, relationship between the plasma level of the IoT-related peptide and the endometrial cancer. So I was just wondering, do you have any further information around that? Sorry, I am not on that topic. I, I would uh, speculate too much. It's uh, beyond my expertise to answer this question, but uh, very interesting question. I mean, we are still, uh, we still wondered uh, how agouti-related proteins are able to influence lipolipids. We have some idea because uh, they are not many neurons which, uh, which uh, leave the brain and follow uh, the path uh, through the through the organs, and uh, the vagal nerve is one of the most prominent target for this. But I'm sorry, I have not uh, insight on the endometrial cancer, uh, although it's a very interesting topic. Yeah, really. Yeah, actually, it's exactly I mean as a positive, significant effect reported so it can be related that's why i just asked you because i know that it's an animal model but however i was just wondering maybe you have further information thank you you're welcome sorry for not being able to uh, answer the question in deep oh no here you know science society it's okay to say you don't know <laughs> yeah but possibly if really i can fine. answer something there's still a link um, so i know colleagues are working on on uh on endometrial cancer and they, um, the LPA2 receptor seems to be one of the of the important markers for uh, bad prognosis. But I don't think they uh, they are any they have any clue on agouti related proteins. So possibly very far. And it seems to be that lipids are involved uh, and also in ovarian cancer. Yeah, but um, it's really too far to speculate. Exactly. It's related to the hormonal changes. And also they just found that it's lower in obese controlled women also after they're giving the treatment and correcting the BMI is still has the same Perfect. impact. You, are an, you seem to be an expert. I'm, I admire this. I, I, I'm only a, a visitor in this field. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, uh, Jamie, are you back? Yes, I am. <clears throat> Sorry about that before I was looking some stuff up as we were, uh, as I was listening to your talk, Doctor. Um, that is an incredible talk. Um, absolutely amazing. I have to admit, there's a lot of it that I am I'm very foggy on. Um, so please forgive me when I make any errors on my questions to you. No, there are no errors, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one, one that was sticking in my mind was when you were mentioning about this mutation in the mice. Um, is this mutation the same type of mutation that, that, did you say you found this in humans as well? Um, is, is this the same mutation? Is it identical? Yes, yes. So the mutation, the PRG1R346T, yeah, it's the same mutation as in mice, the homologous, the homologous mutation is the R345T. I mean, it's, it's one, uh, one uh, amino acid uh, switch but it's exactly the same. And uh, what we did, we have analyzed uh, human mutation carriers and uh, we did PPI, which is in fact something, uh, it's a pre-pulse inhibition. And um, in, 
with humans, you are testing the P50 wave after a um, double-click auditory paradigm. In the mice, you also have a double-click auditory paradigm and you test the, 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 the starter response of the, of the mice. And this is some, something similar. And then indeed we have the decrease of PPI, which is which we call an endophenotype for schizophrenia. So meaning this is the inability to suppress um, um, redundant information. So you have a two clicks and uh, the animal reacts at the stronger way to the second click uh, in the starter response when compared to wild app. So meaning it's not able to suppress the redundancy. So the filter function of the brain is reduced. And this is what we know from people with schizophrenia. But we are talking on an endophenotype. An endophenotype is very difficult to, to, um, to uh, define because a lot of psychiatrists say that um, it's difficult. What is an endophenotype? And there they say, yes, it's an intermittent, inter intermittent or a phenotype. So it's in between, between uh, schizophrenic patients and, uh, and patients who have not been diagnosed for schizophrenia. But this also means uh, it's one part of the story and uh, we cannot tell uh, which, how big the part of the story is because we know that in schizophrenia, we always have a multifactorial disease. So there are a lot of uh, very fancy hypotheses where you say the two hit hypothesis. So you have to have a predisposition and then you have to have a bad event which is uh, which is um, uh, then um, starting the disease I mean these are very nice explanations and uh, I think uh, you find retrospectively a lot of confirmation for this yeah but uh, what I want to say is this human mutation is a is an endophenotype it's a predisposition and what we found here with the fasting, uh, it seems uh, not to be very specific for uh, uh, schizophrenia. It's also even more important for food intake. Yeah, yeah but that's another story. That definitely does fascinate and um, that they're both connected in, it's connected in such a way. Yeah, um, I, I'll let someone else on the stage ask a question if they have any, and if there's time, I'll come back with another one for you. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you, Jamie, for the questions. Yeah, thank you so much, Jamie. Um, does anyone else on the stage have another question? Or in the audience? Well, um, I have a question regarding, are you, planning on maybe doing clinical studies next, first with um, ATX-related um, uh, drugs and then um, modulators. And then um, also, I could imagine, could there be, do you think there's a vulnerability through environmental um, insults in um, these different levels um, that, you know, um, could lead to, um, like obesity and diabetes type two driven mechanism and that some sort of, you know, stress um, factors kind of um, also increase this level and not just um, sure. dietary sure. changes. Yeah, I mean, uh, we are, uh, we have a, here a multifactorial uh, metabolic disorder and we are just tackling uh, one part which we can manipulate genetically. And environmental stress 
is sure a, a part of the story. We also tested resilience in this mice, in the PHG1 human mutation mice and this PHG1 deficient mice, and they have a lower resilience, but you don't see it immediately. You see it when you first apply a stress on the animal. So you first have to stress the animal, and then this resilience deficits, which you can measure in, in different, uh, different behavior uh, uh, strategies, then that comes up. Yeah? So indeed what you say, it seems to be some, I really can imagine that environmental stress is, uh, is, uh, is a contributing to, to, uh, to this uh, disorders. And uh, if you have a prevalence, uh, sure this may drive it in one or the other directions. But uh, I'm um, here. We, we I have no uh, idea on how it will work. So what we we tested was uh, food intake. What uh, I can also imagine uh, experimentally to test uh, food intake at stress because you can apply stress protocols for animals and uh, then see how this decreased resilience applies to food intake. This is something which is uh, quite interesting. Yeah, so uh, for sure. But I think um, the, the difficulty on your question is uh, not that the question is uh, not possible to answer, but um, it's difficulty to design an experiment where you exclude other other causes. So you want to have it most you have a, to have a most clear answer, and this is uh, not always uh, possible. You can control a lot, but not everything. Yeah, especially in humans, I agree. We had. Yesterday, a guest speaker here, he was talking mostly about Alzheimer's and brain imaging, but then he also went on to PTSD. And the, I had then the idea, uh, you know, for vulnerability to use um, firefighters as um, a group instead of soldiers, because we hopefully don't want people to go into war. but firefighters have a very high occurrence of yes yeah. so maybe when people apply to become a firefighter to take some samples i don't know how you yeah do yeah yeah i mean that for sure a ppi would be a stressor would be something which you have to test if it's applicable, but uh, would be a, an endophenotype you have to test them and make neuropsychological tests we we put, for example know that this um, PRG1 deficient mice have a higher motoric, uh, they are hyperlocomotion, they have a show of hyperlocomotion, they have a better motoric performance. So, indeed, it's not so far away of thinking that, yeah, it's feasible. That's so interesting. Um, do you, if you think of using. Oh, one second. Our room cleaner just uh, went on. Yeah, so. Oh, don't worry. Um, did you? It, would you think it interesting to look also into ADHD type of models? Since you have this hyper excitability, sure. maybe it's also related to this pathway. I don't yeah, know. I mean, a, 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 uh, this is the, the hyperactivity disorders are uh, quite complicated. I mean. Uh, sure, yeah, they are uh, different models. Shank Free is uh, one of the uh, models, and uh, they are, I think, uh, four different mouse uh, lines. They show exactly opposite behavior. Um, sure, would be very nice. Huh? And I think 
uh, what we have shown here, this may be an accelerator of the phenotype in some mice, yeah, um, um, because it's an endophenotype. It's something which uh, brings up other phenotypes which are mostly hidden, yeah. This could be, um, but that's it's. Uh, we didn't start with this. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah, I understand. I was just thinking it would be quite amazing if you know the drugs. I think you're starting to design a human drug that targets the ATX inhibitors. Yes, yeah. we are we are starting this, but this is a long way. But I like your idea very much with firefighters. I mean, uh, we should test them for this human mutation. And uh, my bet is that uh, they don't have it. Yeah, <laughs> we tested a lot, a lot of uh, of humans, and um, yeah, they. It's not. Uh, you have to look very close, but. Uh, Stress is not uh, not the best thing. Yeah, I mean, for nobody, nobody really is. Uh, yeah, stress a good thing. Uh, if you, at least if you think it's a positive stress, but firefighter are really stressed. I like this idea very much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. I use so I um, when I did a PTSD study, I needed. I wanted to look into more groups, and one of the groups was firefighters. But it was different. It was language detection related um, study, and it it was a very interesting compare comparison group. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, yeah, yeah, because so. they have to be stressed. I didn't thought about this, but you're you're right. Very very cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Uh, we've been going uh, almost an hour and a half. I wanted to check with you. Probably, and we probably yeah, be going over the time you planned for this. So, but we will. Yeah, I mean, if they are, if they are still a few questions, we can answer the last questions. Uh, otherwise, I have to look if my my children are sleeping or they they are looking on Netflix in their in their in their bed. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They 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 know when uh, I do not control them. They they start doing nasty things. Of yeah. course, all of. Our kids do that, so yeah, it's but I think it's normal. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we always are a little bit embarrassed, but if you if you take a little bit uh, distance, you look with the distance, uh, it's uh, it's a nice thing. Uh, we I don't think we were very much different. Yeah, I think it's a sign of well, that's just my personal theory. If kids don't try, it's a sign of depression, almost you know, <laughs> you know, when dogs like our different behavioral models when when mice don't even try anymore you know to get to like achieve things or try different things it's a model for depression right so if kids don't try to like yeah it's also a, a view, change yeah. <laughs> it's probably a bad sign so so that's good it's good <laughs> i agree with you katarina definitely <laughs> um i think jamie has one last question for johannes uh, I do actually, Doctor. Thank you. Um, my question was: I was really interested in what you were talking about with the uh, the sodium uh, co-transporter. Um, when you were talking about this, please correct me if I'm not understanding this properly. But when you were saying the sodium co-transporter transports the uh, LPA, that's what's responsible for that. Yeah. Um, and you said that's the the bottleneck with the LPA yeah. getting to no, the. It, it's 
It's in fact the LPC, yeah, the LPC, ah, lysophosphatidyl choline, which is released from the liver. And uh, there are high, um, huge amounts in the blood plasma. And this LPC is uh, transported via this uh, transport. It's called MFSD2A, yeah, so this is a long name. And um, the LPC is the, the amount of LPC is the bottleneck for LPA production at the synapse. So uh, that is the point because uh, even if we have a lot of LPA in the blood plasma, it will not pass the blood brain barrier. And uh, even if you would have some kind of LPA transporter, which you never know, it could be, yeah? LPA is acts very is uh, very instable because you have uh, it's uh, non-saturated and is rapidly degre uh, degraded by lipid phosphat phosphatases, which are abundant in the brain. So it has to act locally and it has a very short uh, um, time of action. So therefore, uh, LPC is the one which drives the LPA production at the at the synapse, yeah, and the transporter pr transports LPC. Uh, actually, that just totally answered my question, because um, it, it was going to be what happens if the transporting doesn't work properly. But thank you very much for your time, Doctor. Okay. Thank you for answering my questions as well. It, it's thank you. really, it was a great pleasure for me to talk to you and a very great pleasure to, uh, to, to answer your question, because I see you come from different, uh, from different specialities and you have very uh, different uh, background and this is for me fascinating and thank you very much for the firefighters i will i will watch the films with firefighters now in a different way oh thank you <laughs> thank you it was a great pleasure having you and we wish you all the funding and all the best for your work it's really important and um yeah maybe you come back with firefighter updates <laughs> Surely, um, let's the... meet in in a few in a in one year back, yeah, from in <laughs> one year from now. <laughs> yeah, that would be wonderful. We would appreciate that. Thank you so much, Johan. Thank you very much. You're you're uh, an extraordinary uh, audience. I I, I really uh, enjoyed uh, to discuss with you the paper. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure hearing your your talk. And yes, please, please come back whenever you have found out more. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, we did appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you, Katarina. And thank you for organizing this. I know this is you do all on extra. So this is uh, I appreciate it. Oh, oh it's yeah. always a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank okay. Bye. 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 Close the room in three, Bye, two, Ooh. one. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs>